0: Welcome to The Gamble in the Glory, where we hear founders tell the story of growing their companies to become industry leaders within the sports betting, fantasy, and iGaming industry. The Gamble in the Glory is presented by Segev LLP, a full solutions law firm purpose-built for the gaming and betting industry. With decades of experience and a truly global reach, Segev LLP is your go-to expert for legal solutions for all challenges commonly faced by companies from every industry vertical, including payments, blockchain, esports, affiliates, data, and more. If you need help with private equity funding, public markets financing, licensing, intellectual property, mergers and acquisitions, commercial deals, or other business needs, this is your team and it's what they do. Whether you're just getting started or have already scaled to become a stalwart of the industry, discover how SeGov LLP can add value to your business and help you achieve your goals. Learn more at www.segev.ca. All right, we are back with episode five of The Gamble in the Glory, where we talk to founders that have scaled their companies to become industry leaders. Through the first few episodes of this series, we've welcomed some of the most accomplished entrepreneurs in this space, and I'm pumped that the trend continues with this one. I'm joined by Charles Gillespie and Kevin McChrystal, co-founders of Gambling.com, who join me from Monaco and North Carolina, respectively. Guys, welcome to the Gamble and the Glory. How are you doing today? Thanks,
1: Jesse. We're very happy to be here and all good. Greetings from Sunny Monaco.
2: Yeah, greetings from Charlotte, North Carolina. Glad to be here. Awesome. So you guys have been on this
0: journey for coming up on 20 years now. And I have to say, in preparing for today's discussion and doing a bit of research on your journey here, it really seems as though you guys have like done and seen it all. And you know, in fact, I was thinking like if there was such a thing as an entrepreneurial bingo card. Yours might be close to a full card. I mean. There's a, an early pivot in there, international expansion, M&A transactions. Uh, you've bought multiple category-defining domain names, received countless industry awards, and, and of course, more recently completed an IPO in 2021. So uh, you've literally done almost everything. And I think people are really going to enjoy hearing you share your perspectives and experiences over the next hour or so here. So let's get right into it. And I want to start with the origin story, because as origin stories go, I, I think you guys have quite an intriguing one. Charles, you were actually a recent guest on the Next IO podcast and shared a bit about the origin story at a high level, but I'd love to just sort of pick up that thread from that conversation and for the benefit of folks listening to this episode. I'm wondering if you guys could sort of share the, the very beginning of all of this, as I say, almost 20 years ago, if you can get in the DeLorean in the time machine, go back there. Just tell us a little bit about kind of how
1: this all started, and then we'll kind of follow the arc of the journey closer to today. So it goes back to North Carolina. Kevin and I are both from Charlotte's. We both went to the same middle school and high school together. We met on like a field trip on a bus
2: one day when we were like, what? 12, 13, yeah, something like that. Would have been seventh grade. Oh. Yeah. Randomly sat next to each other on a bus. That's my first memory of Charles at least.
1: I remember Kevin was the first person that thought I was funny, that he immediately endeared himself with that we were buddies growing up and then, uh, ended up going to the same university. We both went to UNC. We both studied politics, political science. I think, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my career or life at that point. And UNC, you had to actually apply to get into the business school and as an undergrad, just a major in business applied to the business school and got denied. Did not get into the business school at UNC. Not that I'm bitter about that at all, or that I still think about that. But at the same time, they launched a, they had just gotten a hundred million from the Kaufman Foundation to create this thing called the Carolina Entrepreneurship Initiative. And a couple of enterprising professors, which had been entrepreneurs themselves, set up a program where kids could start to do a minor in entrepreneurship. So that's what I ended up doing during those years. Kevin, you got a
2: double major, didn't you? Yeah, I was a uh, philosophy yes. and political science. I think at that time, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, maybe even end up in politics, but every, every lawyer I talked to was extremely unhappy. So I was searching for something else to do. I was always interested in entrepreneurship, but didn't really know how to get into it. It wasn't as accessible in those days. Charles had a vision for this, you know, early on, which was, it was interesting. You know, Charles is ever since I can remember building websites, I mean, he was building, you know, what flash sites probably in ninth grade in, in high school. So kind of before really anybody else I knew was into it. So it always been kind of part of what he was into.
1: I had some exposure to the industry during my university days. I started my first affiliate sites, 2003 registered starkgamblingonline.com built out an affiliate website, I had discovered an affiliate program. I read the terms and conditions, you know, send us traffic and we'll send you money. And I thought, okay, I can probably have a go at that without, you know, it doesn't really cost anything to build a small, simple website. You know, we were kids, we didn't really have any money. So I took a shot at that and nothing happens. And then six, seven months later, I saw an extra couple hundred bucks in my bank account and I did not know where it had come from. I really just had no clue, took a few days for the penny to drop. Then I realized, wait a minute, somebody actually found that website I made last summer, must have signed up for an online casino, and I must have gotten a commission and they paid me. And uh, in the great tradition of the online gambling industry, it came from some no-name company in some weird jurisdiction, you know, you would never be able to place. So that was kind of my first introduction to the industry. And then I, I had some college roommates that played a lot of poker and did very, very well indeed with it. Only kind of helped grow my love and curiosity for the industry i I really wanted to work in the industry but again coming out of school we didn't have much money so we you know i was thinking okay how do we get into this in the most kind of capital efficient way and that seemed to be be affiliates you know it's it's not it would be a lot cheaper than trying to be an operator and being a b2b supplier that was over our heads we weren't about to try to make enterprise software or games or anything like that so I managed to talk a friend of a university professor into investing in the business early. The original business plan was leave the States and go to the next biggest market full of people that love to gamble, because the U.S. is almost certainly not going to regulate anytime soon. You know, I'd sent a few letters to my congressman in North Carolina. I got a few responses. I got a lecture from one of them about how online gambling is responsible for terrorist financing. You know that was the tone of the conversation in in two thousand and six, and that very quickly led me to believe that this was going nowhere fast in the u s and obviously fast forward 20 years is a very different situation, but it took decades to to get there. and I had secured this investment, and I called Kevin and i said look i've got I've talked this guy in into backing me with a couple hundred thousand bucks." to move to China to build a sports betting information website. Will you come with me? Like, let's do
2: this. And Kevin had a few terms and conditions. Well, yeah, the site at the time I think was Dragon Bets. That was the opportunity. And I said, I said I'd do it, but we have to rename it to something else. So we landed on a WSN.com, uh, which is now owned by another affiliate, which long story we we ended up selling that but you know it was just a short domain name was was really really the key there and you know at that point in time too i was super into fantasy more than you know charles came from the gambling i was in by 25 30 fantasy leagues into the sports analytics side you know the first opportunity was a like a sports stat site basically which we you know were able to kind of add on gambling information to so it was nice marriage in that sense and you know we were young so moving to china wasn't scary. There's little to lose. It seemed like a fun adventure. We were whatever, 23, however old we
1: were at that point. It was a extremely fun adventure. We managed to connect with a couple of very successful American internet executives that had been in the, in the C-suite of the largest Chinese internet companies. They opened up their Rolodexes to us. And so we, we really kind of hit the ground running with all the right people in the startup scene in Shanghai, which was at the time, incredibly vibrant. You know, it it was, it felt like maybe Silicon Valley in its prime because there was so much excitement. There was this sense that the Chinese pie was so big that nobody needed but a tiny morsel of it to have a really interesting outcome. And there was an incredible amount of cooperation between everyone out there and was, you know, I think uh, 180 degrees different than the way it is today. Fast forward two decades and the uh, relationships between the U.S. and China are now very different. You know, China is a, it's a very difficult place to operate as a foreigner now. Not that it was easy back then, but it was was certainly more accepted and, and easier. And, you know, our whole kind of thesis in the beginning was China will regulate and we'll be in a little bit early. We'll have this interesting American sort of approach to things and, you know, we'll do very well. After a couple of years on the ground in Shanghai, we realized, okay, China's not regulating anytime soon. And even if they did regulate, Two dudes from North Carolina are probably not best placed to end up with the top of the scrum on who's gonna make the most money in, in Chinese online gambling. So maybe we can deploy our, our limited time and resources in a different way and turn this around. You know, we basically had a broken startup after four years on the ground in, in China. But what we had done with WSN is we built an English language version of it as as kind of a plan B. And it was also how we kind of did quality control on the Chinese version
2: because we didn't speak Chinese. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the site was mostly sports data and stats that would help you with with gambling, and the content was automated, so it's pretty easy to do a multilingual site. And eventually, the UK site also just started making money more than the the Chinese site. We're like, well, let's just kind of why make this difficult? Let's let's do that instead. And we learned a lot there too. You know, one of the the through lines this business has been SEO. Uh, I think during that period, really on this like massive scale site, learning how to do that properly. You know, that was always kind of a main part of the thesis, but really figuring out how to get it ranking this huge, huge asset and, and even to, to build it for SEO. Once you kind of figure that out, we're like, okay, we can, we can take this and, and do lots of things with, with the SEO angle, not just WSN in the UK market. But back, back then too, we were looking at the UK and we're like, are we too late? You know maybe this is 2008 2011 we thought we might maybe miss the boat of course we haven't or we didn't still growing in the uk to this day and it's been a great lesson for other markets for us You know, you're rarely too late
1: for these markets at some point around 2009 and 10 we started to realize okay casino is actually from an affiliate perspective maybe a more interesting opportunity than sports betting you know there's not as many players but the players are more valuable and they're harder for the operators to get. So they're basically willing to pay more for the players. And then on the content side, it's not—it's just not as complicated to build the content for a casino affiliate site than it is to build the content for a first class sports betting affiliate site. The SEO is harder, it's a lot harder, but that is where we thought we had our edge. And we made two really key pivots at that time. So we pivoted away from China toward the world's largest regulated market at the time, which was the UK, and the UK has obviously been the world's most mature and longest regulated market up in the largest until very recently, and away from sports to casino. So we started building out casino affiliate sites. The first one of those was Casino Source, which was around and had a very good run. That was a, probably a 15-year run for that, but we just rolled it into casinos.com last year. But that was our first pure play casino site first market we targeted was the UK and and that started to work. It was not an overnight success. It was a hard grind. I remember innumerable late nights and tedious projects to get that thing working, but it, it did work eventually. And around the same time, I got a phone call. We had started working with Mark Blanford in 2008. Uh, he originally invested in us when we were still in China. And, you know, I think he described our ambitions in China as quite Grade, which at the time I thought was a compliment. And then I think I learned more about British nuance and, and, and others <laughs> that that was a compliment, but only in certain ways. Anyways, we've still been working with Mark ever since. Mark's a fantastic partner of ours. You know, we would not be where we are today without Mark. And in, uh, 2011, we got a phone call. Mark had been contacted about the gambling.com domain name, which was at the time owned by media corporation, a formerly UK listed company, which owned a great many fantastic domain names. And they, they had bought gambling.com in 2006, a couple of months before UEGA. And they paid, I think 20 million for it. And at the time allegedly it was making a million dollars a month or something like that, you know, it was a very, it was a highly successful affiliate site in the U S market in 2006, but then you had UEGA, the market closed overnight, unexpectedly last day of the congressional session big disruption and it went from apparently doing very well to to basically not even making money it wasn't even profitable once they had to pull out of the u.s market the guys that had it were they were not seos or digital marketers they were more kind of on the finance side and they didn't pivot it to the uk which we thought was kind of the obvious thing to do with it and it basically withered on the vine for about five years until they needed money and they went around the industry and said they're going to auction the domain name. I think they said they had a reserve price of, of 9 million bucks. And we had seen these headlines and thought, okay, well, not that we have 9 million bucks, but even if we did, that's, that's too much for that domain name. You know, that's not what it's worth. And as the clock was ticking down on them and they became more and more eager to find a buyer, to raise some cash, they rang around the industry, called us, and we thought This is very interesting at a more reasonable price. This is something we need to take seriously. So there was a whole series of discussions over a long weekend with Mark and with Media Corporation about, are we gonna put in a bid at what level? And obviously we're gonna have to find the money. You know, the company doesn't have that sort of cash lying around. So that would entail some, you know, an extra kind of push from the back from existing investors. And all of that happened. We put in a bid of two and a half million bucks on a Friday. And they said, if you raise your bid to 3000000 million, we'll end it early. We'll end the auction early and you can take it home. You'll be the winner. And we did not bite on that. And they called us on Monday and said, you won the auction for $2.5 million.
0: You saved yourself a half million dollars there in the process.
2: Yeah. I, I dusted <laughs> off some of the gambling.com business plan we made in 2011. And a lot of great ideas in there that we haven't even gotten to yet. I think casinos.com is going to inherit some of these, uh, these great ideas. I think there's... um You know, a lot of the vision we laid out there is what we executed. And it's interesting to to look back on that.
1: Well, uh, I'll I'll try to kind of fill in the blanks and just finish the story and then we can go on to more just kind of topics du jour. But after we got the gambling.com domain name, we had to rebuild it. It was basically a broken affiliate site. It produced one new depositing customer in the first two months that we had it. Officially, we just bought the domain name. We didn't really buy a website. There was no people, no process, no revenue. They kind of let us just keep the old website for a couple of months while we built a new one and I think it was 2012 by the time we launched a new one. And then it took a couple of years to really get some traction with it. It was not an overnight success. There was an incredible number of late nights. We built our own publishing platform for that website and we didn't use WordPress. We've always been kind of tech first, you know, that's my background as a geek. Let's build proprietary technology that gives us an advantage. Otherwise, what value are we really adding here? And it took time. But by 2014, it was going pretty well. Team was growing. We had a small team in the U.S. Uh, We've had an office in the U.S. since 2011. And I've been in Europe since 2011. And by 2014, we realized, okay, this is going pretty well. We need to get a bit more serious. We need a proper headquarters. It definitely needs to be in Europe. So where are we going to put it? Okay, Malta, London, Dublin. The debate really came down to, God, it was so long ago, I can't even remember what the number two was, but in the end, we picked Dublin. And that was absolutely the right choice. Had we gone with London, we would have been affected severely by Brexit. But an industry like this, where we operate in so many of these European markets, that would have been an incredible headwind. But we opened our office in Dublin in 2015, started with the first couple of hires, and now we've got over 150 in Ireland, and there's nearly 500 people across the entire group. I think we've got over 150 now in the U.S., so the U.S. would be our biggest jurisdiction in terms of headcount, but most of the senior team, intellectual property, and lots of, you know, the, for all intents and purposes, our, our largest operating entity is, is still in Ireland. Uh, and, and the U.S. really runs uh, just the, the U.S. business for the most part. Kevin, you came over, you, much to my surprise and delight, you volunteered to move to Dublin at the
2: beginning of our Irish chapter. Yeah, that's right. I, I was in New York at the time, just had a kid who was six months old at that point in time and was ready to leave New York. And so the idea of Dublin came up, figured why not? Is interesting opportunity. I was there for what, four or five years, fast forwarding a bit when the PASPA happened and, and ended up moving back to the U.S. But I think I'm on my fifth city now within the group, so from t- 2015
1: to, to 2020, Kevin lived in Dublin. I spent a lot of time in Dublin. Uh, you know, I've been based in Monaco since 2011, but, you know, spent a lot of time on the road traveling for work and had been very happy to spend a lot of time in Ireland. 2016 and 17 is really where we got uh, serious from a corporate finance perspective. That's when we brought on our first and only CFO, Mr. Elias Mark, who's been a fantastic member of the team. Elias came on and helped us raise 16 million from some Swedish investors in a convertible bonds because we thought we, at the time, we thought we would take the company public in Sweden because that's just what you did with a European online gambling performance marketing company. You know, we had a couple of peers already listed on Nasdaq Stockholm and those investors had had you know a lot of sessions with those companies so they understood the space they understood the affiliate part of the space nobody had listed a company like this in the u.s you did have XL media listed in london but there was a bit of a hub in sweden at the time and and it seemed clear to us that that was the the path to go and so elias even though he's married to an english rose and went to university in scotland he is originally from sweden and obviously speaks swedish and so you know, he was kind of the perfect hybrid for us, you know, helped us get taken seriously in Sweden, but is also very easy to work with and and relate to from our own past experiences. So we raised that convertible bond in 2016. We did four relatively small acquisitions. We got bookies.com out of that. We got some apps out of that, which could have continued to do well. A few other smaller sites. Uh, It wasn't they were not landmark transactions that, you know, made huge headlines, but it helped us scale up a bit. And we thought that that, you know, we wanted to demonstrate our ability to do M&A prior to taking the company public in Sweden, because continuing to do M&A would have been a, a big part of that strategy. And then PASPA happened. That was 2018. And we all, you know, we were well on our way with the Swedish IPO. We had what we thought was the best investment bank in the Nordics engaged to do the IPO. We were some ways down the path, and then we all had to kind of sit down and look each other in the eye and say, wait a minute, hold on here. The facts on the ground have changed. The strategy needs to change. Why would we IPO this company in Sweden when clearly the future of this industry is now in the United States? And we're the only people that run one of these companies that are actually American. So it it was a 180 move at the time, which felt quite painful because we, you know, we had been pushing so hard in a, in a certain direction, but it was, it was the obvious thing to do. I then had the distinct pleasure of ringing 80 Swedish bondholders and telling them that we were not actually gonna IPO the company in Sweden. We were going to raise some additional capital and repay them as quickly as we possibly could, because that was the, the fair thing to do. And also, you know, those, those investors had come into a convertible bond because they wanted equity eventually. And so we offered them the opportunity to convert to equity if they wanted to. And I think 10 of them did. And they got in at like, I don't know, two bucks a share. I, I can't remember exactly what the figure is, but if you translate it out to today, it's it two, two two, 50 a share, something like that. You know, so they've obviously done incredibly well. The ones that converted to equity. Then... You know, we started a series of conversations to figure out how we're actually going to IPO this company in the U.S. Uh, at the time, we were a Maltese company, had an office in Malta for many years, and, and for a long time, the Topco was a was a Maltese company. For those of you out there that have dealt with certain things in Malta, you know, it's not always the most efficient jurisdiction for some things. And And when we looked at it, when we looked at taking a Maltese company public in the United States, we realized very quickly that, first of all, it had never been done before. We would have been the first, you know, there had been some struggles with, with some bureaucracy and we said, okay, that's, we, we don't need to get a, an award for blazing a new trail here. Let's, let's make this more simple on ourselves and redomicile the top company to a jurisdiction, which will play nice with the Americans and, uh, is somewhere that the plumbing already exists in order to do a U.S. listing. So we settled on the channel island of Jersey, transferred our, our top coat of Jersey started Doing board meetings in Jersey and uh, you know all the work that goes into a U.S. IPO that is probably worth its own podcast. But what you quickly learn when you try to take a company public in the United States is that it's all about the audit. That is the most complicated thing by a country mile. Companies which are listed in the U.S. are have to be audited to to a special standard, the PCAOB standard, which is uniquely onerous in terms of how thorough the auditors go. You know, the auditors themselves then get audited by the PCAOB to make sure that they did it correctly. And you don't really know what that means until you go through it yourself. But we had to get, you know, re-audited for a couple of years, even though we already had PWC Malt as our auditors. That was not good enough uh, because they didn't have that special accreditation you needed for the U.S. So we did all that and got the company listed in July of 2021. I think we got about 40 odd million in proceeds from the ipo and we promptly used that to do two deals at the beginning of 2022 so we bought rotowire which is the for fantasy folks out there like kevin you know it's the original authority in fantasy sports in the united states so we saw this as a really obvious opportunity to buy a company which has a 25 year old well-known american sports website that's not doing sports betting. I mean, it was a kind of perfect setup. So we went in and, and essentially added on a new business model to Wire, this performance marketing model that we know and, and do so well, and that added on an additional revenue stream for them that didn't exist previously, but it also didn't conflict in any way with their existing business in terms of that premium content subscription that they sell and the other work that they do supplying content and news feeds to uh, sports companies around the United States. So that has gone very well and we're very happy with that acquisition. And the next one was bonus finder. Kevin, you want to go over that one?
2: Yeah, I think bonus finder was the one other business we've come across or website or group of sites that most reminded us of gambling.com, both the team, the way they work, the way they think about entering markets. Their growth trajectory, margins, the whole thing. So made a lot of sense to scoop it up. You know, when we start thinking about other businesses that we're maybe stealing ideas from, it's often a good time to target them with M&A. Um, they, they had a great team as well, and it's gotten spectacular, I think, with them. Continue to grow. Lots more on the table there, too. Since the bonus finder deal, we
1: haven't done another acquisition, but the big kind of development in the business over the past two years has been our push into media partnerships. So a little credit to some of our peers. Our our friends in Copenhagen uh, kind of pioneered this model, but we've tried to take a little bit of a different angle on it and and partner with large media organizations in the U.S. that have an entire portfolio of newspapers rather than just one individual newspaper. And we did a deal with McClatchy uh, at the beginning of 2022, and then we did a deal with Gannett. beginning of 2023 and that's proven to be a a really interesting new driver of the business for us gannett in particular has got the usa today which is really the only truly national non-business newspaper in the united states and if you go to usatoday.com betting that's basically all us that we help them monetize sports betting across the united states They also have, you know, hundreds of local in-market papers, which we also support and work with, in addition to uh, the papers that are owned by McClatchy. And that brings us all the way up to present. So now the next big date on the calendar is March 11th, when sports betting goes live in North Carolina. We've got betcarolina.com, in addition to all of our other more well-known brands. But we've also got the two major North Carolina newspapers, between the Charlotte Observer and the News & Observer thanks to the partnership with McClatchy. So Kevin will be directing the troops from the Queen City, and I'm sure that North Carolina will be another successful new state launch for us.
0: Well, guys, I mean, I have to say it's a hell of a journey you've been on, and and the arc of it is is truly fascinating. I'm going to resist temptation to pull a thread on a number of the points you've raised over the last 20-ish minutes here, because I do want to, you know, shift some of the time to focus on more contemporary topics but I do want to just maybe take a couple minutes here and and just get a bit of perspective on a few things that came out of of that for me anyway and I talked to a lot of founders through the podcast that are on their quest to find product market fit and just kind of hearing the arc of your journey with gambling.com I'm I'm just curious to hear like as you reflect back on your own journey towards product market fit I mean there was a few like pivotal moments it sounds like obviously exiting China and, and focusing on the UK pivoting away from sports to casino. I mean, these sound like, obviously, you know, key moments in time in the story, but I think more like on, you know, for yourselves as the entrepreneurs driving all of this, like, what was it like for you to sort of reach product market fit? And I guess what I'm curious about is like, how did things change and, you know, mentally um, and and just like for the business going from startup to scale up? Like, what does that mean when you talk about sort of crossing that chasm from startup to scale up? And Charles, you mentioned a few times in that story about things kind of growing up and, and getting a bit more mature for the business. Like just what's that meant, I guess, or what does that look like in practical terms, kind of just getting a bit more, you know, structure and, and operational cadence and all these sorts of things that you would associate with a more well-oiled machine than sort of a startup at the earlier stages, wandering through the forest, trying to find itself. Like just talk a little bit about, I guess, that for, for you guys, if you don't mind.
2: For us, obviously, you know, Charles went through it the in depth there. We pivoted a few times uh, with different types of assets, different markets. I think for us, the proper product market fit was about a year and a half or so into into gambling.com. I mean, A, we're profitable, which is a huge step. And so you can kind of keep going, but then you feel like you have a model that can scale. Up to then, you know, we had a lot of good ideas. We understood what we needed to do. But we hadn't hit the beachhead yet that we thought we could grow from. And so once you're there, obviously that's um, exciting. But scaling is is hard, especially when yeah, you know, the early days of when you're, when you're thinking about it, it's, you don't want to put too much resource into it, right? You want to stay fairly efficient, but think about this business, the finding product market fit and a scale up or two, just totally different phases, right? Finding product market fit, you're just kind of wandering around until you get there. The scale up's intense though, and it's just as hard, but for, for totally different reasons, you know, the, the hardest part with, with scaling up is the people, finding the right people, learning how to kind of manage them, having the right processes, org structures, um, all of that. And that has continued right through, through different phases. You see a lot of teams fail, you know, once they get past whatever the 25 people or so mark, and then similarly around the, the 100 people mark for whatever reason, communication just starts to, to break down. For us, a big part of that was that moving to Dublin, needing to properly scale. You know, we've historically been a remote first group. Charles and I have only lived together in the same city for like four years, this whole journey which is wild, but it's worked, you know, in Dublin during the initial kind of proper scale up phase, we were all in the same office, which was helpful. Um, but it's yeah, totally different process. And, you know, you look at Silicon Valley just as an example, um, everybody thinks this tech hub, it's really a a growth and scale hub. That's the expertise and it's a different set rather than just knowing how to find that thing that got us product market fit and how do we deliver that across a wider group of people is its own challenge. Yeah, just to add on,
1: you know, in terms of the key breakthroughs, yes, it was a pivot out of China to the UK. It was the pivot from sports betting to casino. And then it took some time for us to really understand the value of the traffic and how much we could actually sell it for. You know, I think for a period of time, we had achieved some level of scale in terms of traffic and NBCs, but had not yet kind of really fully appreciated The pricing power that we had and
2: once that became more clear everything started to move a lot faster yeah a lot of that initial product market fit is learning just where the where the money is in the in the the monetization funnel once you figure that out it kind of all clicks uh some will
0: We're going to come back towards the end here with a few, again, just more like actionable insights based on all of your experience. But let's shift here for the next little bit, talk about a couple more contemporary topics. Given that you are one of the category leaders within the industry when it comes to performance marketing, you know, I'd love to get your perspective on a few aspects to that business model and I guess generally the role of affiliates within the space. You know, I mean, look, to call it what it is, my my read and my sense right now is that the Particularly from a U.S. perspective, I guess I'll qualify it by isolating it to the U.S. But it really seems to me that the operator affiliate relationship is a contentious one at times. And, you know, a lot of the operators I talk to, like, take the position that affiliates are almost like a quote unquote necessary evil. And I guess I'm just curious from your guys' perspective, again, as one of the largest performance marketing companies in the industry and and really supporting these operators, like, Does this sentiment actually align to your experience? Like, is there actually truth in this or like, what's your perspective, I guess, on just this overall vibe right now on just that relationship between these obviously very key stakeholders in the ecosystem?
2: Look, there's a lot of operators that are begging us for traffic as well. Uh, that side just doesn't get as much publicity. There's always going to be probably some brands that view it that way. Oftentimes, especially if they're smaller brands, those are the ones that, that don't last. Yeah, the affiliates can deliver a more cost-effective acquisition strategy um, than they'll see elsewhere, especially with brand marketing. Our sweet spot it always has been and will likely continue to be challenger brands. That's where we can deliver and what they need overlaps the most. But I think a couple different groups of affiliates. Perhaps there's those that maybe aren't delivering as much value. A lot of small ones that are you know small affiliates that are perhaps very needy. I can see why you know maybe some operators would be less interested in working with them. But, you know, we've always really strived to deliver high value players and to be an easy partner to work with, a preferable partner, you know, one that can deal with compliance and this kind of thing. And that really helps. And for us too, especially brands that want to expand globally, well, we can help them in many markets. There's always going to be points in time where there's something contentious happening, but I I don't think that's the rule. I think that's the exception. I agree with all that
1: and necessary evil isn't the most flattering phrase, but I think it's pretty accurate. The operators, big operator affiliate relationships, they could be paying an individual affiliate multiple millions a month, which if you're, you know, in the operator's shoes, that's a lot of money. But at the end of the day, when they do the math, they understand that they're making an incredible return on that investment. So they come back every single month and make that investment. And it hasn't changed in 20 years. The value that affiliates can provide for these operators, it's been remarkably consistent since the inception of the industry. You know, this kind of affiliate, everybody loves to ask, well, how's the affiliate operator relationship evolving? Well, if you just zoom out a little bit, it kind of fundamentally hasn't changed at all in 20 years, to be honest. And the operators more than ever have better business intelligence so they can actually calculate the value of this traffic in a fairly sophisticated way and therefore They know what they're getting and they're
2: even more confident than ever to buy it. Yeah. 15 years ago, there was the same conversation, right? And we're still here. And if anything, the industry and the affiliate operator relationship has only grown since then. It is one of the oldest businesses on the internet, the affiliate business. And another topic that I think is quite, again relevant
0: right now is responsible gaming and again from a u.s perspective uh, it really strikes me that like things are becoming more and more under the microscope when it comes to responsible gaming i mean look five and a half years now coming up on six years post paspa repeal obviously there's a bit of a land rush here and and you know we, we all know how it's played out and what it's led to is, is a bit of a saturation i suppose in in marketing messages out there and just the general proliferation of betting content into sort of like the mainstream consciousness and now, you know, we're we're starting to see a little bit of like what people call the inevitable backlash towards some of that. And Gambling.com, I think in November last year, a few months ago, I guess, you were a founding member of a new trade association called the Responsible Gambling Affiliate Association. So through that lens, and I guess just given the backdrop of sort of this increasing conversation around RG within the U.S. market, can you guys just share a little bit about your perspective on it? Maybe what was the catalyst for you guys to be one of the founding members of this new trade association?
1: Yeah, sure. The RGAA was formed amongst ourselves and some of the other major affiliates in the U.S., really in response to this idea that affiliate marketing in various states should be limited in any way. There was a bit of a situation in Massachusetts. You know, there was a proposal that there should not be marketing affiliates. So ourselves and, and the other members of that group swung into action before the group was formed. Yeah and brought the facts and the full context of the situation to the policymakers and help them understand that if they didn't have affiliate marketing, they're going to have even more TV, radio, outdoor, and all this stuff, which is actually more in the face of the average Joe because it's being pushed at them. Whereas most of these affiliate marketing companies really run with a search model, which is the opposite. The only way you see gambling.com is if you go to the website. That's an argument. Everyone has always come around to that argument when they get all the facts. So that it's not a, you know, we're we're fortunate to have a highly defensible position on this. But yeah, it's not, you know, responsible gambling is a critical aspect of the entire industry. Problem gambling is everyone's problem. You know, we've got a very substantial problem gambling resource center on gambling.com. But the RGAA itself is more of a, is not directly about responsible gambling. It's more about ensuring that the affiliates in the United States market are represented and not discriminated against.
0: Interesting. And I guess just sort of through that lens and just to continue on the theme for a moment, what are some of the the tangible activities that the association is doing? I mean, is, is it lobbying? Is it just having conversation and opening dialogue with policymakers? Like what is, what is the actual, I guess, sort of like functional remit of the association?
2: A lot of the goal is just to have a unified presence. What's happening prior to this, you know, we always thought kind of all regulations, good regulation for gaming. We just wanted to move gaming forward. Uh, It got to the point where that wasn't necessarily the case, but it wasn't obvious for whether it's a regulator or legislator, just anybody interested in the process, especially on the affiliate side, who to talk to. So we want to create a unified voice on that and just make it obvious who the leader is there. You know, we strive to be kind of inclusive within the affiliate space, but we're focused on is overall, more than anything else, the proper regulation that is a little bit different in the U.S. than other geos. We are not licensed in most countries around the world. There are a few, but in the U.S., that's a part of it. So we need to make sure that A, us as affiliates are on the same page, and then B, that we can communicate that effectively to our partners at the state level. The responsible gaming is super essential and that is a key piece of it. I mean, we want to show that we are being responsible as Charles noted, you know, without affiliates, you're going to get more just generic brand marketing. We always target high intent users that are kind of seeking out information rather than pushing information to those users. You know, I think there probably is too many, there are too many ads on TV and that that sort of thing. So, you know, wanting to limit that's totally reasonable, but that's not, an affiliate issue. And I think at times many legislators and regulators don't totally appreciate where the line is on that. That's kind of not us. So just explaining kind of how our business model works is a big piece of it. education.
0: Awesome. The, the one thing that also really strikes me about your story is your guys's co-founder relationship. And I'd love to spend a couple minutes talking about that if, if you're willing to. Look, I mean, you know, co-founding a company is is hard at the best of times and for co-founders it's often likened to being a marriage right i mean it has its ups and its downs and it's on a roller coaster and just like the sheer amount of time you spend together i mean probably other than your spouse if you're co-founding a business you're probably spending the most amount of time with your co-founder and in some cases maybe even more time with your co-founder than your spouse right so i guess i'm curious to hear from you guys over the arc of this 20-year journey i mean really dating back to when you met on on the school bus back in the day like How have you both been able to maintain such a strong partnership and and really like what have the keys to success been for you guys maintaining that partnership and obviously kind of going through the evolution of the business together and evolving yourselves as individuals and entrepreneurs and just staying in sync through the entire arc of that journey? Just like talk a little bit about that, I guess, and share, you know, maybe a bit of, of wisdom for other founders that might be earlier on in their journey.
1: Uh, at the very beginning, we lived in the same apartment and worked together all the time. And we realized pretty quickly that that was not a sustainable strategy. So we, we fixed that, but as Kevin said, we have not lived in the same city actually but for a couple of years on this journey you know but we're on the phone all the time we're on slack all the time we're at board meeting i I feel like i see kevin all the time even though we don't live in the same city i've got different areas of interest and different strengths i think than kevin and kevin's strengths and areas of interest are quite complementary to mine and i think that's been incredibly helpful for all this you know i don't mind dealing with investors and capital markets and the finance side of the business and
2: I think Kevin probably gratefully doesn't have to do some of that. Yeah, I, uh, I think we do have, you know, complementary skill sets, not just in what we're good at, but also interested in, but we also do think about the world much in the same way, which is important. Uh, it could easily, I think this probably wouldn't have worked if if that wasn't the case. We've always had a, a healthy um, you know, openness to debate topics as well, kind of find the, the root issue and answer and think about it from like first principles perspective. And, you know, I remember early on, <laughs> people think we're arguing, we're just debating the topic, trying to find what's the actual truth here. That's served us well as we continually, as we grow, think through what we're actually doing and the why, why behind it. But we're not afraid to have a kind of real discussions on those. And I think that's totally essential. If, if you don't have the healthy debate, that, I think the relationship will fall apart.
0: Awesome. And I'd like to do a bit of a, a rapid fire on, on a few questions. Again, more in service of, of providing a little bit of experience sharing and insight through your journey. Charles, earlier on, you made reference to the investors that are, you know, that have backed you um, from the earliest stages. And, and certainly it sounds as though your experience with your investors has been nothing but positive and a lot of value add. And based on that experience, I'm just curious what you can maybe share with other founders as they're out there, maybe looking for their first investor, maybe assessing different investors, like how you know, you often talk about due diligence that investors do on founders and opportunities and deals. But less talked about, I think, is like the reverse due diligence of founders really taking the time to find the right fit for an investor, because that really is a partner you're bringing into your business. And for better or for worse, you're going to be stuck with this person for the duration of your business. So I guess I'm just curious, again, given that the tone of your experience is very positive, like what can you share with other people as they go out there and assess potential
1: new capital partners in their businesses? I think we were probably more lucky than smart, to be honest, but we found two great entrepreneurs that had made their money and were looking to back the next round of entrepreneurs. I think entrepreneurs backing entrepreneurs is, it's a good fit. They understand the business plan is irrelevant the second you finish writing it. You know, and that you're going to get punched in the face and things are going to change. You know, I remember when we called Mark and said, look, we're going to leave China. You know, I was expecting to get it in the neck and he said, if that's the right thing to do, then let's do it. And I was kind of shocked, but only an entrepreneur would have the poise to handle a situation like that. Later in the development of the company, we have worked with a private equity fund in the U S and that's been a positive experience. They have brought added financial discipline and rigor to some of our process, which was a little foreign to us, I suppose, at the time when they came in, but it was, you know, in retrospect, they were right about all of those things. And you can always debate strategy and direction and what's the best next move. But fundamentally, having people that have done it before, I think, is is the safest bet in terms of taking on outside capital. But we always say one bad apple can ruin the whole barrel, you know, from just a people perspective. And the same is true for investors. You know, if you get one wrong person on your cap table that decides to sue everyone or make everyone's life a nightmare, that's pretty much the end of a startup because people aren't going to want to stick around and and deal with that where they could just leave and and get clean slate. So entrepreneurs have got to be careful about who
2: they're getting in bed with. I I add to that, I think it's important, especially these days and over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of examples of this, to make sure that you have the same long-term interests as your um, investors, this isn't something we've seen, but we see this throughout the market, especially a lot of companies are looking at with M&A, where where maybe they raised at a little bit of too high of a level, too high of a valuation and expectations need to be reset. And that's very challenging. I think everybody wants to put the kind of biggest number on the table. We're worth X and we raised Y and that can kind of shoot them in the foot down the line. And a lot of these businesses that we see are not really kind of venture capital, style businesses, but there's the expectation it's going to grow like that. And so you really need to understand what the profile of the business is and does that align with the investors? And if you do do a deal, you know, what are, what does that mean for your future options down the line? Cause it it can become a limiting factor.
0: For sure. All right. Next rapid fire topic here for you guys. Obviously over the arc of a 20 year journey, lots of lessons, I'm sure you've learned the hard way through experience. Is there one that stands out for each of you that really serves as a case study that you would dispense as advice to others and and help them avoid making the same mistake or anything like that jumping out for you in terms of just lessons learned? In my case,
1: we we touched on this when we pivoted from doing the Swedish IPO to playing the long game and and IPOing the company in the U.S. I did have to call 80 pissed off Swedish bondholders. And I personally grew a lot through that experience. I realized I had always been quite focused on pleasing everyone. And it was the first really point in my life where I realized the right thing to do is going to piss a lot of people off and and it's all fair and it's all correct. No one's behaving unethically, but the the correct course of action now involves telling a bunch of people, no, that thought they were going to hear yes. And, you know, we did everything we could at the time to make that right. And as we said, you know, it came very right for a lot of those investors. But yeah, it's something that really has then gone on to affect other things in my life. I've become more comfortable disappointing people, which it sounds like a kind of a
2: strange skill, but it's something I think is necessary for an entrepreneur. For my end, I I think a lot of people can focus too much on strategy sometimes, especially in early days, when you just need to focus on execution. Execution is the hard part. You know, we're constantly turning down good ideas because we're worried we maybe can't execute on it. And we want to execute properly on everything we do. Executing is much harder than than coming up with an idea. Where we're at now, executing is all about having the right people and that has its own. But I, I think a lot of teams just don't spend enough time on execution in general they just, you know, maybe hire one person and assume it's going to be solved or whatever. But it's really challenging and it takes a lot of effort from everybody.
1: We're very good at saying no to things and focus is always front of mind. Anything we're doing needs to be adequately resourced with the right people and the right amount of investment to ensure it has a credible path to success. Otherwise, don't even bother. Awesome. And then my next question here is a bit more philosophical.
0: And I mean, look, zooming out a little bit, I'm just curious, like, how do you think about ambition and, and just like what drives, I guess, humans, generally speaking, like you guys have created something with, uh, I think, a nine-figure market cap now and you're continuing to push, right? And what pushes you to, to keep, you know, showing up every day, keep grinding when, you know, ostensibly, like you, you probably don't, you know, air quotes, need to, like, what, what keeps you going? And, and just sort of like, how do you, I
1: guess, think about ambition in that broader lens? For me, it's the competitive dynamic. I see other companies out there that do what we do, that are good at what they do, that I respect. And it's what what drives me is being able to put up better growth figures than every one of those companies every time we report. You know, it's a bit of an intellectual game. It's like a giant complex 3D poker game or something. You know, obviously the money is a big part of it, but I think we're at this stage is clearly about a lot more than just the money. We've also got a great and loyal team. And we've got an incredible number of very talented people that have bet on Kevin and I with their time over the past 10 years in some cases. And they're very loyal to us. And I think we're very loyal to them. It's a beautiful thing when you've got a committed group of smart people that are all pulling exactly in the right direction. And you never want to let them down and you want to deliver the best results you can.
2: Yeah. Look, we're still relatively young, 40 and not going to go sit on a beach for the next 30, 40 years. So you have to do something. Um, we built this thing. We expect this, this business, we have to continue to work. We built it in a way that it's a place we'd want to work at with people we want to work with. And so it makes a lot more sense to be here than somewhere else where you have to try to recreate that or however you want to think about it. You know, when we first got started, we were always very ambitious we got humbled a few times along the way, but, you know, I remember thinking I would be, if I wasn't retired by the time I was 30, I was like a failure, but kind of learned long ago that that was, it's going to play out a little different than that. And, you know, expectations have changed as, as well. And I think, um, you know, no matter how big you get, you always realize, oh, there's this other goal out there. Wouldn't it be fun to get there? That keeps growing just as we've grown.
0: Awesome. I guess just looking ahead to the future now, I mean, you know, as you alluded to, Charles, you have the North Carolina launch coming up shortly here and and no doubt a bunch of other initiatives that we'll hear about in due time. But like zooming out and maybe over like a five to 10 year time horizon, let's say, like, what do you think the world looks like for yourselves and and the gambling.com group in that time and and kind of where's the puck headed as it relates to, to the future of the business and I guess your respective involvement in it?
1: Well, in 10 years is a long time. If you just say kind of five years, I would hope that we are head and shoulders above the competition as the undisputed, clear, number one, largest, most influential online gambling affiliate in the world. That is our mission. If you go 10 years out, you know, I think it's probably fairly likely that we'll be doing more than just the variety of gambling affiliation that we're doing today. You know, maybe we're selling other services to our 200 plus online gambling operator clients but i would think at some point before 10 years we'd probably look to expand the tam if you will and add on additional business models but for the foreseeable future there's a very high ceiling just in terms of what we're doing with, with the business model we have now so there's no short-term focus on that but you know 10 years is a long time and i, I would think that we'd be doing more than just what we're doing now in 10 years
0: Awesome guys. Well, I think that takes us to the finish line for today. Uh, the hour flew by for me and and it was extremely insightful. And as I said, a hell of a story and it's been fantastic to get a bit of a, a deeper window into it. So thank you both for giving us the time here today and giving the audience your time. And uh, just a quick plug for anybody that's looking to learn more about the gambling.com group and or get in touch with yourselves or your teams. Can you quickly shout out where people can go do all of that?
1: Yeah. Gambling.com slash Corporate is our corporate website so that's got all the corporate information including contact us forms. Kevin and I see anything that comes through on those forms. So if anybody wants to get in touch, just drop us a line there.
0: Awesome guys. appreciate it once again, wishing you all the best and yeah that wraps up this episode of the Gamble and the Glory. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Bye for now. Thank you, Jesse. thanks a lot, Jesse.